who among us was not enthralled to watch scientific exploration in progress? With the recent Perseverance rover as it landed on Mars in pursuit of scientific discovery. According to NASA, the Mars Perseverance mission addresses high-priority science goals for Mars exploration, including key questions about the potential for life on Mars. This is, by definition, textbook science. Perseverance is not the only scientific enterprise that seeks out signs of undiscovered life forms. Breakthrough Listen is another project dedicated to the potential discovery of extraterrestrial life. It is a $100 million interdisciplinary scientific effort to try to detect electromagnetic signals that are indicative of intelligent life beyond the earthly realm. Breakthrough Listen is based at Berkeley SETI Research Center. The acronym SETI stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, a program in existence, at least in concept, since the late 1950s. Berkeley's SETI team is composed of professors, researchers, grad students, and undergrads. No one can argue that the subject of extraterrestrial life, UFOs, and the like does not have its share of disturbing and profuse noise and baggage in the form of kooks, charlatans, hoaxers, and contrived images of flying saucers and little green men from Mars. Yet, probably the vast majority of the enterprising researchers from NASA, the Berkeley SETI team, and others involved elsewhere would probably state emphatically that they do not subscribe to the notion that little green men exist, nor are they looking for little green men. Indeed, they are simply exploring the possibility of unknown life. These men and women were keen to join the search for extraterrestrial life, despite not one single shred of empirical evidence that extraterrestrial life exists, despite the weighty baggage and controversy that's associated with the subject matter. Arguably, although the search for extant unknown hominoids on Earth has its share of scientists involved, most scientists refuse to become attached to the investigation of the phenomenon, citing the baggage and hoaxing issues that have unfortunately infiltrated it. In their eyes, the phenomenon is malignant. Still others tend to vocally and polemically dismiss outright the prospect that a mystery ape could even exist at all in remote pockets of North America or the world, despite a fossil record that clearly indicates the Earth has been, at least in the not-too-distant past, host to a litany of similar mysterious species. There is... Arguably, some compelling evidence that even suggests the continued presence of some sort of undocumented mystery ape. Moreover, scientists estimate that there are as many as 7 to 10 million faunal and floral species still to be discovered here on Earth. Hundreds of new species are discovered every year. As recently as 2020, a new monkey species that is likely to go extinct soon, the Popolongur monkey, was discovered. Scientists estimate that there are less than 300 of them left. Fortunately, some intrepid scientists did what was necessary and cataloged them before they are lost forever. I'm Daryl Collier of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and had I waved my hand and cynically dismissed the possible existence of a mystery ape in North America as the source for thousands of reported enigmatic encounters, I would never have seen with my own two eyes that such a magnificent species does indeed walk this earth. The same goes for a number of my colleagues in the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. We respected a cliched, but in this case apropos, admonition. 
we did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We looked past the baggage, the kooks, the woo, the disconcerting noise that accompanies this controversial subject, and joined in the effort to detect the presence of an unknown mystery ape in North America. We continue to be engaged in this endeavor even as you hear my voice. But don't just take my word for it. I challenge all scientists and citizen scientists listening to my voice to ignore the cynicism and abject dismissiveness of many of your peers. Cast aside your biases, forget politics, and don your boots, gloves, and field gear. I submit to you that this is bigger than all those things, bigger than any of us or our personal idiosyncrasies and predispositions. Join us in this venture to detect and demonstrate the existence of what appears to be some sort of unrecognized primate. Be inspired by the NASA and SETI scientists who personify the practice of science. Be inspired by Dr. Angelo Caparella, a longtime wildlife biologist, university professor, and discoverer of multiple new species, who seeks to definitively answer the question, is the Sasquatch a real flesh-and-blood animal? Why not join Dr. Caparella in person in the field? Join the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. There is far more to gain than there is to lose. The recent discovery of the Popalangur monkey supports this assertion. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of Apes Among Us. I'm Matt Pruitt. I'm joined by my co-host, Daryl Collier. How's it going there, Daryl? It's going well, Matthew. Glad to be here with you. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to be here, too. We've both been quite busy, and so I, it feels like we just put out an episode, but I know it's been a few months since we put out an episode. Life's been very busy for you. You've been completing your master's degree in history. Uh, I've been involved in a few things, and so we apologize for the delay, but we're here now and better late than never, right? Yeah, Absolutely. And, and we've got some things to talk about right now, so uh, it's a good time to put, uh, put together an episode. This episode's going to essentially be a one-on-one conversation between the two of us, which we're hoping to do a lot more of here in the future that will be interspersed with these sort of longer, multi-segment radio program style shows that we typically do. But I mean, obviously, those take a lot of work on the pre-production side because we've got to schedule multiple interviews with people or we have to record segments in the field or when we're together at member events, et cetera. And so some of those are in various stages of pre-production. In fact, it's worth saying that part of the reason we've been so busy has been related to the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. You know, we were down there. I serviced cameras back in December, uh, the first upload of Hadrian's Wall. Then we just had a a member retreat uh, about two months ago, and you and I were there, and then we serviced cameras. And then today actually marks the last day officially of the 2021 summer operation. So we've had our hands full with a lot of ape-related endeavors and NAWAC-related endeavors. Yeah, and I had some time. I had some good time out in the field. I led two te- two teams out there, and uh, first team we had uh, we had some very interesting uh, events that we documented, and then this last team was uh, extremely active 
had, we had a lot of uh, a lot of activity that we documented. It was pretty incredible. Absolutely. It doesn't get old. Even just being down there, if nothing happens. I mean, I was there for a week. We had some compelling things happen, but nothing that was, you know, definitive or like hyper characteristic that you knew that you could eliminate all other potential animals uh, from the sounds that we were hearing. And so I, I was able to record some segments in the field and then a roundtable afterwards. And we got some audio recordings in the field. So that will be essentially some of the meat of the next episode. But it, it is a, a beautiful place to be despite the heat, despite the snakes and the bugs, uh, because there's all, it's, it's like the, the air is always sort of pregnant with potential because something could happen at any moment. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and the thing is, you know, you were there, your, your team, uh, really, um, didn't really have a whole lot of activity. And then my team relieved your team. We took the watch from your team and then we tried a few different things that, uh, that hadn't, that to my knowledge, hadn't been done uh, previous uh, this year. And, you know, we had, like I said, we had quite a bit of, of activity. And so it's always interesting because you never know what you're going to get when you go. I mean, uh, you could go in there and you you don't document anything of, of, of any particular interest out of, out of the mundane, or you can go in there and sometimes, you know, the locals want to raise the roof. And that's kind of what happened when I was there this last team. Certainly. Well, it's funny. I just did this, uh, uh, you know, a public event. I, I do a few speaking events a year, typically, and there's a, an event in Gatlinburg, Tennessee here that's called the Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference. And I spoke at the inaugural event in 2019 and met some really great people. It was about 1,600 people in attendance then. And this year it was over 2,000 people. I, I was absolutely amazed at how many people came up and introduced themselves and were asking questions about the group's work about the organization's work. People were asking about area X and Hadrian's wall and very specific things. So they had some knowledge about it. They, they definitely uh, indicated that they, they knew what was going on. Absolutely. And so there's, there are definitely people out there that are waiting for, you know, more detailed field updates. And so I can, I could, uh, first I'll say thank you very much to those people for listening and for coming up and being so generous with your time and having conversations and you will be, pleasantly surprised at the 2021 Operation Recap episode that will be forthcoming. I would love for us to talk a little bit about some of the methods that you might have used in the field this year that were different to previous years and you know just some of the things that we brought into the field this year that might have been different in terms of approach perspective, strategy, tactics, or all of the above? Well, uh, for instance, last year, the teams I had, uh, we were focused on specimen collection. Uh, this year, the teams, both both teams that I had, we were focused on photographic evidence, collection of photographic evidence. And that's not to say that we were not attempting to collect a specimen. We did, uh, particularly on the last team, we had an individual there um, whose job it was to uh, if, if the opportunity presented itself to um, take uh, advantage of the opportunity and uh, collect a specimen, it was, that was his job. But the rest of us, we were focused on photographic evidence during the daytime. All of us were equipped with really good cameras. I, you know, I've not been a photographer in the past, but I've, I've gotten on a really, really fast learning curve. I've got I, I purchased a really, really good camera that is... Um, that was really designed for sports photography or wildlife photography. It's fast, has a great autofocus. The, the camera goes dormant after a minute, but it, it reactivates instantly. 
just with the press of the trigger. And so it's really geared for that. I've got a super, uh, a super lens on it, excellent lens. So it makes me a very nominal photographer, and I use that word photographer loosely when describing myself, but uh, it makes me uh, uh, far better than I, I, you know, I could be with any other sort of camera. It, it does a lot of the work for me. I use autofocus simply because based on my own experience, um, it, most visuals are only going to be two to three seconds long at the, at the longest, at the most. And so I've got to be able to immediately focus and take the shot, photographic shot, that is. And I've got it set so, so that it's in automatic mode. So that if I one press the trigger and it's automatic, it's, it's clicking, it's taking photo after photo. So I press the trigger, it's pop, 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 pop. It's taking photograph after photograph. We have a, a segment of the organization who's, who's dedicated to collecting photos and they're, they're called the camera core. And that's their job. Their job is to, is to get photos. And we've not really focused on that in the past, Matt, um, because we've been, I think the organization has been really, really focused on specimen collection, which I think it's imperative that a specimen be collected. It has to, has to be done. It's dirty work, but it's got to be done. However, I, you know, I, I, I want to see more, more efforts toward photography by individuals, by, by certain individuals. And uh, I, I think that there's value in photographs. I, I don't think, I don't think photographs are going to get the species listed. I think a specimen will do that. Now, some would argue that DNA will, I, I, you know, I don't want to get into that argument, but um, I think photographs are definitely going to move the ball down the field. W- what are you thinking? There's no doubt that the public is always going to be hungry for images. And I, that applies to me probably as much, if not more so than anybody, because I, you know, I still haven't had an observation and I would desperately love to see images of these, of these animals. And so whether even if you were to collect a specimen by whatever means, whether that is dispatching a living individual or whether one is found to be uh, deceased of natural causes or whether one's hit by you know the proverbial logging truck somewhere in the country, it's still not going to provide the public. It's not going to satiate that hunger for people to see the animals alive moving in their environment. So I think there's always going to be a value in that. I mean, you would always prefer to watch documentaries about snow leopards and see that rare footage of them than you would read about them. Although reading about them obviously is fascinating, but if, if you had your druthers, you'd rather look at the images, right? So I, I do think there's a tremendous amount of value in that. It, and it really speaks to, you know, I've, I get asked very often, you know, because I've only been involved with the organization for five years now. Has it been five years already? It has. It doesn't. It feels <laughs> like it's been a year, you know, something like that. It feels like I, I just started. But, you know, people ask, you know, oh, well, they've been doing this for so long. Where are all the pictures? And it's because we haven't been trying. I mean, no, we really haven't been trying to get photographs. At least people are, you know, our field researchers haven't been. Anyway, go ahead. No, absolutely. That's what I, I wanted to kind of investigate a little bit here is that, you know, I know that there was. If I'm not mistaken, the group's effort for photographs was primarily aimed at game camera photographs. Yeah, from 2006 to 2010, 2011, early 2011, Operation Forest Vigil, we had uh, several dozen cameras out in different different areas: Area Y, Area X, Area Z. Obviously, we didn't we didn't ever produce any any uh, any photos, not even in really any anything that was even questionable. And so we we sort of we sort of became uh, disenchanted. Uh, with the photography route at that point, that's when we had an internal discussion and decided that a specimen, a specimen has to be collected. And, and we, we still think that the organization still 
has that as its as its primary goal. But I think it can be augmented, and I I can't help but think that. And there was there were a couple of opportunities, Matt, uh, with the team that I was out there with, golf team, G O L F golf team. Um, we use a NATO phonetics, by the way, to identify our teams. Golf team that I was on. Um, there are there were a couple of incidents out there that I was involved in, and I thought I was going to get photographs. I mean, it, things were pretty intense, and I, I just thought at any second, any moment, I was going to get photographs. And see, here's the thing about it: when you when you and I've had a number of visuals, but very few of those visuals would allow for any any sort of clear shot with a long gun. Very few, but. A number of them in, 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 my, in my mind, uh, looking back in my mind's eye, seeing these, these images that I saw and the wood apes that I saw, I think had I had a camera equipped the way I was on golf team uh, and Charlie team of this year, had I had that camera with me, the NAWAC would have already produced photographs. I'm positive. I'm confident of it. I think that's been missing. But uh, at least for me, I'm going to try to change that. I'm going to, I'm, I mean, that is my focus now is to get photographs. Now, that doesn't mean that my teams are only going to be dedicated to photography because, like I said, a golf team, we had a, we had a, a collector on there. One of our team members, he, his job was to collect a specimen, but the rest of us were dedicated to collecting photographs. And I just think photographic opportunities will, be, will present themselves more often than the opportunity to, uh, to shoot one and put it down conclusively. Yeah, everything has a cost and a benefit, right? And so there's a, a big benefit to game camera projects. And if there if there wasn't, then we wouldn't be so deeply invested and involved in this Hadrian's Wall project. And that benefit is that they don't get cold, they don't get tired, they don't have to go to bed, you know, they don't get scared. You know, there's all these benefits, but there is a cost because a game camera can't look over its shoulder if it hears an indicative sound. Yeah, they, they are limited. Yeah, they definitely have limitations. A game camera can't respond with a sound to try to elicit an approach, or a game camera can't get up and move 50 yards upstream if it's hearing some indicative sounds in that direction. And so, again, there's a cost and a benefit to everything. And so I see your point in terms of the past photographic efforts after, I think, how long was it? Five years, essentially? Yeah, 06 to uh, 11 yeah, which were almost entirely predicated on stationary game cameras, not having yielded images. During that time, there's this internal discussion that leads to a transition of the organization to say, well, our primary focus should be collecting a specimen because even if we were to get photographs, they might not be sufficient to encourage institutions to officially recognize the existence of this species. And so then the the idea of, of images is sort of not jettisoned, but it, it it's at least, you know, put much further down sort of the the hierarchy of goals. Whereas this year, like going into this year's operation, you know, we had been managing just so many projects simultaneously that we decided that this year would be more of a laser focused uh, execution of the two primary goals. Number one being specimen collection, the obtaining of a type specimen. And the second goal nested within that is essentially obtaining visual data, whether that's thermal video or daylight photographs or video or, or daylight photographs and video on the stationary cameras that comprise Hadrian's wall. Because those two goals are both predicated on seeing one. You know, you, you can't obtain a specimen unless you can see the animal. And if you can see it, you should at least be able to photograph it or capture video. And so literally that's, that's basically all we focused on this year. And for me, just for me on a personal level, it, it, was, it was extremely liberating 
not to maneuver around in, in that it's basically a jungle, North American jungle. It was very liberating for me to be able to maneuver in that environment without a long gun. It made me far more mobile. It made it easier to move around. Uh, I didn't fatigue as, as quickly. I can handle a camera a lot easier than I can handle a rifle. I can maneuver it. I can move around. I, it's, I'm, I'm not carrying the weight. And I am, I'm convinced that I can get photographs. I, I believe I can. And I, for me, and I, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, even a nominal visual, I can still get photographs of it. And you know what? I don't have to worry about my round being sent downrange uh, at, at, at what is a nominal visual with a, with a photograph. It doesn't matter. You can take as many as you want. The visual can be as nominal as you as as you want it to be. I mean, it can be just barely. For instance, if I saw a Sasquatch, would a stick his half his face out around the tree, and he's sixty meters from me, and there's a lot of vegetation between us, but I can use my autofocus to zoom in on that one little piece of face out behind the tree. I can still get photographs, and I test. And I mean, I, I tested that this year with white-tailed deer. I, took a number of photographs of white-tailed deer, and they were in some thick stuff, but I was able to autofocus through, get through to the deer, and take some really good shots of, of white-tailed deer. Um, you know, I wish they had been wood apes. They weren't, but the point is that they were in really thick stuff. Uh, I couldn't really see them that well, but once I zoomed in with my camera, autofocus, and zoomed, I got some pretty decent shots, and had those been wood, had, had, had those been wood ape pictures, we would be having a very different discussion, and I think there would be a a large discussion underway right now in, in various, uh, in various media, probably around the world. Well, I think you're, you're primed for that in a lot of ways because the same techniques that wildlife photographers use are the same techniques that hunters use. Totally. And hunting is so much more difficult, not just for the reasons that you mentioned, you know, the, the, all of the concomitant hassles of carrying a long gun, but then all of the assessments in terms of safety that come along with even aiming a weapon or even glassing through a weapon. Yeah. And you have to be sure of your target for, you have to be absolutely certain uh, of what your target is. You've been executing this incredibly difficult act for over 10 years down there. And now you've transitioned to carrying a camera and it's almost like you've been running marathons for 10 years. And now you've switched to uh, you know, a run that's only 500 yards. Yeah. And you know what? It, it was so fun. The two weeks I spent out in the bush with the camera, wildlife photography is fun, man. I mean, you know, I, I would I was very camoed and I was uh, essentially just just totally concealed and hidden. And wildlife, they were oblivious to me. It, it, it was fun. It was just a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Um, like I said, it was very liberating. And so I've I've retired my long gun in uh, in uh, the field of uh, wood ape research. I've retired it. I still have my long guns, of course, uh, because I'm, you know, uh, I love guns and I'm a hunter and all, all, all sorts of other reasons. But as far as this goes, I, I'm, I'm dedicating myself now to getting photographs. And I think my next visual, if I have, if, if I'm fortunate enough to have another one, then I, I think I'm going to have, I'm going to be able to get some sort of photos. They not, may not be great photos because it may not be a great visual, but unless it's just really, really fast and the individual runs across the trail in front of me. Because then you really don't have time to do anything. But if I'm if I'm concealed, if I'm planted, I'm concealed, and I see one moving through the trees, I'm going to be able to get some sort of pictures of it. I have no doubts about it. You know, I get asked a lot about 
UFO related matters because so people have this, and I'm sure you get this too. You've been doing this for many years. People have this implicit assumption that if you study one thing that they think is like esoteric or strange, that you must also like, oh, what do you think about the Loch Ness monster? And I always, you know, I don't know. I don't read that stuff. It's like I don't even think about that. But people often ask, well, what do you think about UFOs? As as if you know, I, I would have some interest in that solely because I pursue the Sasquatch. But in this particular day and age. It, is, it does have relevance because there are these these similarities between these two phenomena. Let's say that, you know, they both have a long history that comprise many, many witnesses and they both are, you know, fairly unpredictable. And, you know, they, they are seemingly ubiquitous when you look at them from, you know, a bird's eye view of, you know, a, a century across the whole continent. But then, you know, if you were to go to one given place and try to document something, you learn pretty quickly that it's exceedingly rare. But I think what we're seeing now is that there is this renewed public interest. And interestingly, there's there's this sort of permission that's been granted by institutions to have this discussion. You know, like the data has been building for or or the data set rather has been accumulating data for decades and decades. And but it was always relegated to the fringe or the taboo. And now based on the strength of a number of pieces of visual evidence that were obtained by very credible, reliable sources, institutions have said, you know, there is a there there. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about this. There's something here now. Let's, this is very interesting. Let's, uh, let's, yeah, let's open the discussion and let's open the discussion panel and let's make it, let's make it easier for people to talk about this. And now it's, you see it in, in, in a, you know, broadcast journalists, man, they're talking about this like it's, you know, like it's an everyday story. It's it's no longer taboo to talk about it. You don't you don't see the, the you don't see the smirks. You don't you don't hear at least to the degree that you used to from journalists and that sort of thing. You don't really see the, the sarcasm. You don't hear it. It's it's people are discussing UAPs as they call them now in, in a serious manner. I think that's what photographs, good photographs, would do for this subject as well. I really do. I agree with that. I, or I could at least see using this current state of the UFO phenomenon as an example or, or as a potential analog that powerful enough visual data could cause institutions to give us permission to discuss this thing, you know, free of ridicule, where it's, it's, it's a permitted part of public discourse to consider what these images represent. And because if you think about in terms of extraordinary claims, the old adage, the old axiom, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, it, that's all predicated on your definition of extraordinary. And so if I were to compare the two, I mean, we know that apes exist. And so we're positing one more ape. Now, we know fossil apes existed in a variety of other forms. And if this is some descendant of that Asian ape line that produced Indopithecus and Gigantopithecus, we're not even adding one more ape to the fossil record. We're pulling one from the fossil record and keeping it extant. So that's really not extraordinary. We know that apes occur in, in Africa and they occur in Asia. And, you know, humans are apes. And so humans occur in North America. But so the only things that are extraordinary is, okay, well, we're positing one more extant ape and we're, we're putting it in one additional continent uh, where it hadn't historically been recognized. If you compare that to the UFO UAP phenomenon, the common perception is that it is intelligence, off-world intelligence, which to me is much more extraordinary than saying, well, there's one additional ape around on one additional continent. 
and, and yet that much more extraordinary concept is such a part of public dialogue now that and it's totally permitted and, and the taboo has essentially been eradicated that I do think powerful enough visual data would change the conversation in such a way that it would be permissible to discuss without the association with the fringe and that it would also sort of recast the history of the Sasquatch phenomenon in a new light to say, oh, well, on the one hand, this is a breakthrough. Look at this new, fascinating information. And on the other hand, it's like, yeah, well, it's more of the same because people have been claiming to see these things for as long as there have been people here. And people have been documenting their sign in terms of tracks and other forms of physical evidence. And occasionally people do get photographs and video and vocalization recordings, et cetera. And so it's, it's paradoxically simultaneously new and groundbreaking and more of the same. It would just take, again, something that would influence these institutions to give us permission to talk about it without fear of, of ridicule, essentially. And I think there's, a, there's probably a quiet, and I think it's probably a large group of people that sit back in the shadows and they observe and they listen and they watch this entire field and phenomenon. And I think for them... And they're not quite sure what to make of it. They're on the fence, so to speak. And I think for them, a lot of them probably could be moved to get involved. And, and I'm talking people with with uh, credentials, people that, that could certainly make uh, an, an impact in the field. I think good photos, uh, a series of photos, several photos, a number of photos could maybe – impel them to actually get involved. And once you do that, once, once you start opening those doors, uh, I, I think it's anybody's guess where it goes from there. And so th I think there are just, there, there are, there are certain paths that good images could take us on that would, that might surprise us. And that would, I think would be very pleasing and beneficial to the field. It would be a, a fantastic thing to see more people who are pursuing this employ those tactics. And I'm I'm speaking to myself as well. You know, for years I had uh, a Sony Handycam with an extended battery and a very large hard drive in it. I actually still have the thing, but it's so antiquated now. I think it came out in 2006 or so. So the 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 pixel count isn't great. It does not have the resolution of of today's cameras for sure. But you know, I use that in the field quite often, but not as diligently as if I were pursuing, you know, semi-professional or or attempting to pursue professional wildlife photography in terms of employing tried and true field observational techniques that are used by field biologists or even like you first said to me in the beginning, when we first spoke, you know, for about 10 years of my field research, I was primarily only out at night. You know, I was always armed with night vision units and thermal imagers because I was so confident that they were more active at night and so they might be bolder at night so my chances were better at night and so the only time I'd be out during the day was just pretty much to scout a trail that I would walk at night so I'd have familiarity with it to move around in the dark and you would ask me like well have, do, do you ever just put on camo and sit still and use conventional hunting methods and I said well no I do this you know I was trying to defend my nighttime position and you said you read all these books. I mean, you, you realize how many hunters have daylight sightings, right? And I said, oh, well, yeah, that's true. And you said, yeah, well, maybe you should try it sometime. Yeah, the hunter has more. I mean, there are more documented sightings by hunters than any other group except for motorists. I mean, they're right up there at the top, both of them. 
Yeah, and I, I've tried to explain this to so many people. I've if, I've said this probably in uh, way too many interviews. So if if you've heard me say it before, forgive me. But yeah, if you if you were to put a camera in every single car that had a road crossing sighting, because that is the most numerous subset of witnesses. You know, the the largest set of of Sasquatch observations come from motorists, and so you would have this library of potentially thousands of clips of footage that would be mostly at night and all like two or three seconds long. But if you had a camera in the hands of every hunter, let's say a video camera in the hands of every hunter that had a daylight observation, you would have a a library of fewer clips, maybe hundreds, but some of those would be multiple minutes long and they'd be in beautiful daylight, full color, uh, sometimes unobstructed as the animal moves through the environment. And it's clear, you know, if you deeply investigate those testimonies and you find the witnesses to be reliable and credible and, and what they say is is what they saw, then it's clear that the animal had no idea that there was a human in that environment. And so, you know, despite me having that handy cam and then other handheld cameras, and despite me pursuing this in the field heavily since about 2004, I've been ashamed to say, like, I've never actually tried diligently to get daylight photographs. And so it's, it's even new and novel to me. And so it's hard for people to believe that, but it's, I've seen that across most of Sasquatch research for all these years that I've done it is that, you know, most people are trying to have direct observations or to have experiences. And, and I, there's nothing wrong with that because it, it can be affirming or confirming or validating to one's own suppositions or hypotheses or theories. And so, you know, pursuing an experience is of personal value, but it has to be delineated from any expectation that it's going to have social value because, you know, institutions or the the general public, they're not going to really care what you experienced. You know, they want to show me the money, so to speak. And so as much as people are out there and, you know, most people are out there just enjoying nature, but keeping an eye or an ear open for anything unusual the subset of those people that are out there diligently, let's say, researching or pursuing the Sasquatch, most of them are not carrying wildlife photography class cameras and are not using tried and true field observational techniques or wildlife photography techniques or hunting techniques in an effort to get those photographs. And so it is it's another one of these paradoxical situations where on the one hand, yeah, there's a lot of people out there looking around and yet there's nobody out there really trying to get photographs. At least our ob- observations indicate at least where we are, what we call Area X, this animal is very much, very much uh, at least as active during the daytime as it is at night. Maybe equally so, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but we're, we've still had a number of, of daytime visuals. I've had a number of them during the daytime. And so um, I know, I know that's, um, that, that is a notion that's been put forth that, that, that they tend to be largely uh, nocturnal. I, I, at least the ones that we've uh, observed in Area X, I, I would argue that they're equally uh, diurnal. There doesn't really seem to be a clear pattern. It's like it's like they never sleep, or they if they do, it's it's a it's a very much a, a sort of combat sleep. They just take sleep when they can, and then uh, they're active for a little bit during the daytime, and they're active a little bit at night. And it just like there doesn't seem to be any clear pattern as to when they're most active. Yeah, so I think it's wise to uh, to not forget about daytime visuals when when you're doing this sort of research. Oh well, there's plenty of primate species that are cathemeral, you know, that have 
periods of activity that are just interrupted by periods of rest throughout daylight and and nighttime hours. And I think that's what we're dealing with here. Well, certainly, and, you know, John Green even made that distinction early on, but he still leaned towards more activity at night just because, you know, he had aggregated thousands of reports that he, of individuals that he personally interviewed. And so when he fractionated them out to daylight hours and nighttime hours, they, they broke out in almost a 50-50 kind of distribution. So Green rationalized it by saying, well, if you have as many sightings at night as you do during the day, and yet a smaller set of, of observers, and those small that smaller set of observers is visually compromised, that maybe that indicates somehow that they're more active at night. And that might and be that true. that makes sense. That, that's a reasonable argument to make. Well, it might be more true in certain areas than others, just depending on available resources. And, you know, I mean, obviously, they're built for the night to some degree. I mean, the the description of reflective eyes is so common that, and that's a that's something that's selected for nightly activities, but that doesn't restrict them to night activities. Just like, you know, animals, we're aware of a lot of animals that have, Gigantopithecus is a great example, that's selected for duraphagy. They're selected to chew the hardest, densest things in the environment, but that's not all they ate. They also ate things that were much softer and uh, from fruits and leaves, but they still were selected for this this one thing, so to speak. And so clearly these apes, based on the number of observations of reflective eyes, they must have some ability to operate at night. Yeah. And, you know, something that I've, I've begun to question, like really over the last year or two, and it's based on some observations we've had at night that seem to indicate that perhaps their night vision is not quite as sharp as, as, as someone, some would contend. And I, and I say that just because I've had a couple of visuals with thermals within the last, well, since 2017, 2017 and 2019, I had two visuals using a thermal. One case, it was pitch dark. I couldn't see my teammates sitting three feet away from me with my natural vision. And, and then in 2017, there were three of us and it was, it was very dark. I won't, I won't say it was pitch dark, but it was very dark. And it's almost like, just based on what what we were observing, what I observed in 2019, and then what I observed with two other individuals in 2017, it's almost like the individuals, the wood apes, could not really see us that well. They were looking toward us. They were looking at us. But when we stood up and looked, stared straight at them, and, and in one case in 2019, I pointed a rifle with a thermal scope on it for at least a minute, stood up. And, and pointed the rifle directly at it. And it didn't make any sort of uh, um, aggressive attempt to leave. It, it slowly just sort of backed away. That's the one I saw in the thermal in 2019. Uh, and then the one in 2017, we watched it for several minutes, and it never really sort of made any quick movement to get away, even though we were looking straight at it. We stood up. We were all three focused on it. We were looking at it intently. And, and so where I'm going with that is I'm just not sure th- their visual acuity at night is as sharp as what some have contended. And, it, and I know that's sort of a, a, an aside, but I just wanted to I just wanted to sort of make that point because you brought that up about your ability to see at night and uh, how they seem to be equipped to operate well at night. Now, that's not to say that I don't think they, they don't have good vision at night, but I don't think it's quite as sharp as as what we might have thought in the past. Oh, I think that's a very valid observation, or at least a valid, you know, hypothesis. They seem to come so close in the dark. And so it's really easy for people to interpret that as that they're bolder. I've heard that posited many, many times. Uh, You know, I've thought it myself in the past. And then I've heard people posit that they know that we're impaired at night. 
Yeah, I don't know that I agree with that either. I don't agree with it at all because I, I don't care how cognitively powerful they are. It seems unreasonable to me to assume that they are so cognitively powerful that they could understand that we see the world differently than they do. I think that they, if they are capable of assuming things, that they probably assume that we see at night as well as they do. And most nighttime observations sort of support that because even at night, they're hiding. Even at night, they're behind obstructions. They're sticking to dense brush and they're behaving in such a way that it's as if they're worried about being detected even in the dark. And so I think the reason those approaches are so close at night is most primates, especially the great apes, you know, our, their primary sense is visual, but they have, you know, their their hearing is sort of a secondary sense. And then lower down that hierarchy is is olfactory. But, you know, Schaller's field observations of, of mountain gorillas, which he was the first, you know, Westerner to do observational field studies of mountain gorillas, found that whatever novel stimulus that they encountered, their imperative was to make visual contact with it. So they would hear a novel sound and then they would sneak around and come lay eyes on it to investigate it before deciding to flee or to try to intimidate. And so I, it might be the case with these apes too. And so maybe those close approaches are indicative of, well, they'll get as close as they need to in order to visually identify the thing. And if we're in a very thick forest and it's an extremely dark night, well, then they have to get right on the edge of camp to see us. Versus if we're down there in the wintertime, when all the leaves are down and the place is almost skeletal, and where we have a, a roaring fire to stay warm and they can see that fire from, you know, 250 yards away, then they probably don't come any closer than 250 yards away because they've laid eyes on what it is that they've smelled or heard, et cetera. Yeah. And I, I want to point out, uh, you, you reminded me, I want to point out in both instances, 2017 and 2019, we were running what we call a dark camp, no lights, none whatsoever, no firelight, no headlamps, no Glow sticks, nothing. We were sitting in pitch darkness. Now, I think they can see better than us at night. I think there's no question about that. Agreed. But uh, I just don't think it's to the level that uh, has been ascribed to them in the past. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's that sharp. So anyway, I, I know that took us off of the beaten path a little bit, but... Um, no, I think it's it's highly relevant to this discussion because going back to the earlier discussion of game cameras, everything has a cost and a benefit. And typically night vision while beneficial, has sort of a, a daylight cost. There's some sort of compromise that comes along with that, whether that's in terms of, you know, how much color something can detect. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're obviously very acute in terms of their, their visual capability. And all primates are. I mean, we're also, we have a very well-developed visual cortex. We're highly visual creatures. And in fact, as I've been reading a lot more about, you know, how vision sort of shaped us as primates and especially higher primates, I mean, it's so connected to the kind of animals that we are. There's all these benefits to it. And just think about how our language, even tied up with consciousness itself or our language tied up with knowledge, most of it is is based in, in visual terms, like it dawned on me, you know, because the sun comes up and you can see or, hey, why don't you enlighten me about that? You know, or let me paint a picture for you when I'm trying to describe a or can you see what I'm talking about? Can you see what I'm saying here? You know, and so we're just highly visual creatures. If these are great apes, which they seem to be, uh, we should assume that there's continuity. I would assume that they are highly, highly visual creatures and probably keyed into things like motion, much like we are. And so we're still in this learning curve of trying to figure out how to exploit that. But I mean, back to the wildlife photography angle, most of your visuals, 
if I'm not mistaken, have occurred when you were completely stationary and employing these, whether you want to call them hunting tactics or observational field tactics. I mean, you're you're blending in with the environment via the garments you're wearing or you're using a blind or you're using some sort of natural cover as a blind and you're being stationary and motionless. In most of those, I mean, would that be a fair categorization of most of the visuals that you've had? The majority. And all of those, you know, again, going back to, well, if we could go back in time and put this camera in your hands in each of those instances, most of those, like you said, would have led to photographs because they were of sufficient duration that you probably could have fired off a few shots. Well, I could have maneuvered. I, I would have, like, for instance, the, the, really, the one that really comes to mind was 2014 when I was, when I was hidden behind a log um, and, and one stepped out. I turned to look. Uh, so dusk was approaching and I'd been sitting in this position for about three and a half hours and I was camoed and I was, I was really hidden, hidden well. And I was behind this log. Uh, so if you approached me from my right, you would not be able to see me because there was this big log there. We probably concealed everything but the very top of my boonie hat, which was camouflaged. Uh, it was a woodland camo. And so the problem was uh, when I, when I, so when I turned to, to, to see this thing, uh, it was probably 50, 60 meters away. Uh, I had, I was going, I was going to have to, the problem I was faced uh, that I faced then was that I was going to have to maneuver my rifle above the log. Even if I switched to left-handed, which I'm not really good at, uh, I'm still going to have to put my rifle above the log, raise up above the log with virtually much of my body to get a shot off at this thing. Because with a camera, I can, I can take one hand quickly, move it up, boom, 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 that fast. I mean, literally that fast. I can I can I can do that because the camera's light. It's not long. It's lightweight. It it I can I can maneuver it with one hand easily. I mean I know because I've I've been I've been using it now for a while, and I you know all I have to do is autofocus, boom 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 boom, and then just take picture after picture after picture. Maybe then he bur- maybe then he breaks at that point, which is kind of what happened because he broke after I I turned my body my torso uh, to to put my rifle above the log so that I could get a shot at him. Well, he broke. He saw the rifle clear the log and he was gone. He was gone forever. I just I just really think I have confidence that I could have gotten a, a photograph a photographs in, in that instance. And there were there were other other visuals now that, I've, you know, that I've had that uh, I think probably the same thing. I would have been able to get uh, to get some good photographs. <laughs> One discussion I wanted to have and comes to mind often because I hear these sort of criticisms of Bigfoot research in general, especially as it, you know, and I'm not talking about reading into the history of the subject or related disciplines, but specifically what we would term, you know, field research or field investigations, field surveys, whatever nomenclature you want to use that there's this element of it that's unscientific because you're going out to look for something uh, that might not be there. That's sort of the 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 surface level argument. And so I, what I wanted to discuss, because I think it would be relevant to our listeners, whether proponents, skeptics, fence sitters, or cynics, is that essentially what we're doing is we're testing a hypothesis, which is that there is an extant ape in North America. And so the the information that comes in on the front end to build that hypothesis upon is the the canon of testimonial claims. Obviously you know, you can't assign the entire body of claims to a single category because, you know, some of them are authentic misinterpretations. 
some of them are outright fabrications, et cetera. But if you take this body of claims and you extract out the things that are consistent and common, you, you end up with this Sasquatch figure that we're all aware of, which is of a very furtive, very reclusive animal. And so in order to test that hypothesis, when you're in these environments that they might occur, because they, the environment is either viable habitat or it has generated a lot of these observational reports, you have to conduct yourself as if it exists. Otherwise, you're not testing the hypothesis. If you went down there with, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes and blowing an air horn and wearing, you know, neon orange, then you're not actually testing the hypothesis because someone could come along and say, well, your test was flawed because how could you possibly approach a rare, furtive, elusive animal being so offensive in terms of smell and in sight and in sound? Yeah. So, so yeah. So the North American Wood Ape Conservancy is approaching this uh, with two hypotheses in mind. First of which is the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis contends that there is no undiscovered hominoid. That people are lying, they're hallucinating, they're they're misidentifying a, a mundane species for something far more exotic. That's the null hypothesis. That's what we call the null hypothesis. There's also the alternate hypothesis, or what we might call in the NAWAC the hominoid or anthropoid hi- hypothesis. That is, people are actually seeing an undiscovered hominoid. So what the NAWAC is doing is attempting to investigate the alternate hypothesis. We're attempting to validate that hypothesis. That is that people are seeing an undiscovered hominoid. So when you do that, like Matt said, you you have to be careful because there are two types of errors that you're going to make. You you can make a type one error, which is a false positive, uh, and that you incorrectly reject the null hypothesis. To the type type one error prone researcher, it's obvious that Everything you hear and see is a Bigfoot, a wood ape. There's also the type two error where researchers incorrectly accept the null hypothesis. So in other words, you're misidentifying something that is being produced by an unknown species as something that you can ascribe to something more mundane. So like, for instance, if you hear if you hear wood knocking out in the woods and then you report those are firecrackers, then you've incorrectly accepted the null hypothesis. And so that's the way the that's the way the NAWAC is approaching this. We have two hypotheses. We are attempting to validate the alternate hypothesis or the hominoid hypothesis that people are actually seeing a wood ape, a, an unknown species. And we want to put aside all preconceived notions, theories, and we want to proceed under the temporary assumption if only temporary that the phenomenon is real. That is that the species in question does in fact exist. And the rationale behind that is it's fundamentally simple. If the species does exist, then the easiest method of collecting pertinent evidence in support of it is to treat it as if it exists. But we have to be very careful because we don't want to make what we call what I called a type one error. But in our haste to be properly skeptical and avoid making a type one error, we don't want to make a type two error. And that's so it's a it's a it's a dicey game and it is very scientific. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to validate the alternate hypothesis that people are indeed seeing something that uh, science hasn't accounted for yet. And so many of us have these sort of built in, baked in, maybe hardwired paths to type one or type two that are well trodden. You know, they say that like circuits that that fire together, wire together. And so 
I think for a lot of us, that structure is built in sort of a priori. And I am more prone, I think, to type two errors. I've had to recognize that about myself because I have a long list of experiences in the many years of pursuing this, wherein something significant occurred and it's, it's more of an involuntary response. I didn't even stop and think and weigh out the options. I just immediately, intuitively, in big quotation marks, knew what the source of it was. They can like, oh, there's a person over there. Or, oh, well, my teammate's over there. Or, oh, you know, there must be some, you know, other human intruders over there. And failed to immediately follow up and investigate it. And only in the preceding moments did other things occur that that clued me in that, oh, wait, those are not people. And then by the time that happens, usually the 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 window of opportunity to have a visual has closed. Yeah, that's a type two error on the micro level. You've accepted it's a false negative. You've incorrectly accepted the null hypothesis. Absolutely. And in those those cases, for me, it was so automatic that it wasn't like that multiple choice list popped up in my mind and I went, you know. Uh, moose, no. Elk, no. Bear, no. Sasquatch, no. Human, yes. It just immediately said, oh, well, there's a person over there. You know, immediately, just an involuntary sort of like innate response. And so I can beat myself up about that to a certain degree and then have to say, okay, well, I'll learn from that and do better. And then I realize, well, for a certain subset of people, the type one error is also automatic. They're not necessarily doing false it. false positive, yeah. Exactly. They're not necessarily doing that because they're uh, you know, trying to drum up. Now, of course, people do make up stories and people fabricate things in order to find their own validation or in order to build their reputation within the, you know, the Bigfoot realm or whatever the case may be. There's a whole lot of reasons. But I do think in the same way that I'm prone to a certain kind of error, naturally, I have to also allow for the flip side of that and understand that there are people that are prone to that other sort of error. But so when it when it comes down to this question of like, well, if they could exist. The only way to test it is to behave as if they do exist. An, an analogy would be, you know, if you were a law enforcement officer and you had a, a frequent caller that said, every night there's a prowler around my house that's trying to break in. You know, I see this person all the time. It always happens when I'm home alone. Will you come help me out? And you go there with your cruiser and you park in the driveway and you leave your, your lights on, your blue lights. And you sit there all night waiting for the prowler to show up. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, the hypothetical prowler is going to see from a distance that there's a law enforcement officer there with lights on. And he's probably not going to try to break in. And so then that officer would say, you know what? This person is just full of it. They have an overactive imagination. There is no such prowler. Well, it's like, no, because you behaved in such a way that you changed the nature of the environment. It's sort of like the, the act of observation changes the phenomena you're trying to observe in, in many instances. So if we want to test this hypothesis, we have to behave at all times as if these animals do exist. And that does mean abiding by like we said, these these tried and true wildlife observational techniques. And so that's why it's necessary to wear some form of camouflage or earth tones. And that's why it's necessary to use scent control. And that's why it's necessary to be stationary and motionless for hours. And it's funny because I think people have this idea of Bigfoot research that's really romantic, like you're kind of running around, you're chasing this thing, you're in these exotic places. And so it's the adventure of a lifetime. And it's like, well, to do it right, it's probably mind numbingly boring because you, to do it right, you have to sit still in place for four, six, 
eight hours. That's what hunting. That's what both hunting and wildlife photography entail. And and so yeah, and so that's those are inter, that's an intricate part of what we do and what we all should be doing to try to uh, to document to properly document this species. Lots of patience, um, lots of skill. You know, um, the ability to sit for long long periods of time without with little movement, remain concealed, and you just wait. <laughs> and it's just so not easy. Yeah, it is not, especially when in an environment like you just mentioned. I mean, where the temperature is 93 degrees and the humidity is 85%. You're surrounded by poison ivy. You're surrounded by copperheads. You're surrounded by uh, water moccasins. You're surrounded by rattlesnakes. You're surrounded by ticks and spiders. You've got spiders crawling across you, across your face. You know, it's uh, and, and then you've got and then you have to um, you have to be cognizant of, of, a, of a black bear uh, sow with cubs uh Coming, you know, fa- coming face to face with that, and or a mountain lion, or, or you know, anything else that, that may cause you harm, and uh, <laughs> so it's it's not it's not easy, but uh, those those are the things you have to do. Um, and let me just say, you know, proper critical analysis is not is not predicated primarily on skepticism. Skepticism is a part of it. Proper critical analysis involves a very detailed examination, uh, evaluation based on all available information and evidence. And so I think a lot of times people confuse skepticism with critical thinking. Again, skepticism is a component of it, but there's so much more to it. And we have to be careful not to employ dismissiveness in, in an attempt to be skeptical. And I think that's done a lot, and it's and it's a shame, but um, I, I think that's uh, that's a mistake that a lot of people make. They, they end up being dismissive rather than pl- employing proper critical analysis. Oh, I would agree. I think there's a, a marked difference between critical analysis, skepticism, and then cynicism, which a lot of people tilt towards cynicism, and we we all do to a, a large degree in a number of things. You know, there's a, probably a host of things that I don't know nearly enough about to have an opinion of which I am currently cynical as some part of, you know, just internally because I've never investigated that somewhere in the back of my brain. I'm like, oh, that's all hogwash. I don't even need to think about that. And that I could very well be wrong about, you know, so I, I certainly don't blame someone if they have that sort of uh, base level cynicism because we all do when it comes to one thing or another or a great many things. But it is it's important to rec- when that crops up in me. I'm like, oh, I'm recognizing. Oh, there it is. Why is that there? I don't really know. Well, I should dispense with it because you know skepticism. I forget the the root word, uh, the Greek or Latin root word, but it essentially means to look carefully at. And so I think what we're doing is the epitome of skepticism because we're out there. You know, to to look from afar and dismiss from afar is not anything approximating a careful look to be down there and trying these things. And you know, I, just to go back to testing the hypothesis, I mean, that's why it is so important to conduct yourself as if it exists, because if you were to, to fail in that attempt and then nothing happens, you can hardly say for certain with 100 percent certainty, at least that the thing doesn't exist. You, you'd have to say, well, did I successfully execute this test? You know, did I did I control for everything properly? And if I didn't, well, maybe I should at least responsibly allow for the fact that, well, 
maybe it didn't facilitate the observation because I insufficiently conducted the test. And so it, it, there's not only the difficulties that you described that the environment poses, but I mean, we just live in a world of immediate gratification. And so people don't realize how hard it is to sit perfectly still for two hours, let alone six hours or eight hours. But two, I mean, just anyone who's listening out there, go try it and resist the urge to look at your phone and resist the urge to decide. One of the things that happens for me very rapidly is that sort of doubt kicks in. And it's not a doubt in the environment. It's more of a self-doubt where I think, oh, what if there's a better spot upstream? What if I pick the wrong spot? Oh, what (laughs) if I should be looking in this direction? Well, how quickly or quietly or smoothly could I reposition to look in that direct? Because, you know, 45 minutes has gone by. It felt like five hours. Nothing happened. And so I think I'm in the wrong spot. I'm in the wrong spot. I need to move. I need to go somewhere else. And then I have to remind myself, no, because then you will That's be... That's the nature of the business. Yeah. Then you will be interrupting the test. You won't actually be conducting the test because the test is predicated on you being there motionless for hours. And if you get up and move every 45 minutes or every hour and a half because nothing's happened. But yet your assumption is that you need to be perfectly still and undetectable for hours in order for an observation to occur, then then you'll never facilitate it. So it's a very difficult thing to test, just even in a sterile environment, just to combat the, the elements of your own mind that are trying to talk you into moving, repositioning, on and on and on. Yeah. So, Daryl, in spite of all of these difficulties and all of these challenges and all the hardships that come along with that, obviously, we both keep going after this, you know, for many years, not just in Area X, but just anywhere that we can find viable habitat and potentially the 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 opportunity to see one of these animals. So what is it that you think that, that keeps you doing it in spite of those challenges? Well, well for me personally, it's it's a, there's a number of reasons. And I and I've talked about this before, but given what I what given what I've seen, given what what I know, I think I have a responsibility. I think I, and I and I and I feel it on my shoulders. I think I have a load on my shoulders, a responsibility to do everything I can to work toward the recognition of this animal as a species. Because for me, it's like, it's, it's, it's as real as a coyote or white-tailed deer. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's a flesh and blood animal that exists and is a part of Earth's ecosystem in, in various remote areas. And so given that I know that firsthand, without a doubt, with absolutely no doubt whatsoever, I've seen them, I've been near them, I've seen more tracks than I can count, I've smelled them, I've heard them, then I have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to ensure that humanity knows about the species, which is a magnificent species. And I think I have a responsibility to work toward that. And And another part, another reason is just, I'm not a quitter. I've been doing this for a long time, and there are many times I felt like quitting, but I haven't quit yet. You know, it, it, so, I mean, those are just a few of the reasons. What about you? There's so many. As I'm <laughs> writing this book project, you know, I'm, I'm going back through and trying to, like, synthesize all of the greatest works that were whatever, in my opinion, the greatest works that have contributed to the, the study of the phenomenon. And there's several references to this Sherpa axiom or aphorism or, or proverb that is uh, – 
there's a Yeti in the back of every man's mind, only the blessed are not haunted by it. And I have to realize that, you know, I, I am sort of haunted by that. It screams out to my curiosity. And I've been insatiably curious about it for as long as I've been thinking about it. You know, I, I mean, I had my own experience. And so that was mysterious and unexplainable. And the the closest uh, approximation to an explanatory mechanism that I could arrive at, as ridiculous as it was, was this proposition that there were these large apes in North America, because the experience I had was so consistent with other people that encounter or observe such things. And so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, haunted by that Yeti, let's say. There's absolutely, at least in my mind, there's no doubt that it's a worthy endeavor. Look, it's, I think it's very worthwhile to participate in an endeavor uh, that is dedicated to the cataloging of a new species, particularly a species that fits this bill. I mean, that's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible thing. It's a mind boggling thing. Like you said, that, you know, the thing still remains undiscovered at this point. It, that I don't know why that would not captivate everyone's curiosity, everyone's intellect. I don't, I don't, I don't get it, you know, particularly science, right? I mean, that's what science is supposed to be about, right? Discovery. Yeah, I think there's so many benefits that would would come along with the discovery of an animal like that. And so you could look at that as these, you know, various layers, some of which are like, well, things that are just kind of nested within each other. I mean, obviously, it would be great for the animals themselves in order to preserve and protect habitat. That's sort of the the primary mission of the organization. But even beyond that, there's the human element because, you know, we're social creatures and we live in the social environment. We're more selected for the social environment at this point than we are even selected for the natural environment. You know, we're very weird creatures, us uh, homo sapiens. And so I do see all the benefits of validating the efforts of those who have come before, uh, validating the, the witnesses who've made... Uh, statements about their observations at great reputational risk and personal cost, uh, you know, and then on a personal level, just as an individual, like, again, I have that insatiable curiosity. I want to know. I want to see one. I want to experience it. I want to have multiple observations, but I want them to be discovered so that qualified researchers get involved and so that, you know, hopefully one day I'll be watching, you know, the a, like a planet Earth style docu series with. Oh yeah, that would be fantastic. Minutes and minutes of footage of these things, uh, you know, in their natural environment. I, I want to learn all of these things, and so there is always, you know, a, a selfish component for me about you know satiating my own curiosity. And you know, there's so many benefits too because I do think to call it a worthy endeavor. I mean, if I never see one. And it doesn't get resolved, you know, the conundrum, let's say, doesn't get resolved in my lifetime. Well, I've met some of my favorite people. I met my wife through this pursuit. I've been to so many places that I would have had no interest in going to if it weren't for the potential of encountering a Sasquatch or finding a track or something of that nature. And so all over the Pacific Northwest and the U.S. interior highlands now and all over Appalachia and these other places. And I've, I've just introduced myself to so much information, not just related to the Sasquatch, but things that are tangentially related or things from other relevant disciplines. And so I've just fallen in love with reading and learning so much about not only the natural world and its inhabitants, but a whole lot about uh, human psychology and neurobiology and, you know, the way that we filter these experiences. Because I think that has a lot to do with why these things are still undiscovered. You know, there's a great Grover Krantz quote, uh, and I'll paraphrase it. I probably won't get it exactly right, but he essentially said, you know, it's not the Sasquatch that hides so well, but the human response that keeps them obscured. 
and I'm been exploring that a lot and that I'm covering in this book project. And so there's this, there's these two stories, you know, it's easy to look at it romantically and say that the lack of discovery is the success story of the furtive Sasquatch. But there's another parallel story that's equally true, which is like, no, it's, it's the, the failure of humans to recognize the thing. Yeah, that's a great point. And just imagine the frustration of someone who knows firsthand the things are real, who knows firsthand many times over the things are real. That person is met with just this hardcore intransigence with regard to the species' existence. Just imagine how frustrating it is for the person who knows they're real. So that you know, that's a driving force for me because it's it, it is frustrating. It's it's frustrating with me for for people who enter into this field who don't have firsthand knowledge that they they exist. And I, you know, for me again, it's just. It's a species that hasn't been discovered. It's a, it's a, it's a flesh and blood animal. I've seen it. I, I know firsthand. And so it's 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 difficult for me sometimes in terms of patience to deal with people who who have a hard time accepting that the thing could be real when you're when you're testing a hypothesis and you've already validated for yourself personally that the hypothesis is correct. That's a driving force. You can have all the people in the world tell you the hypothesis is is folly, but if you've already been able to see that the hypothesis is accurate, yet you just haven't been able to validate it at the level that is needed, well, that compels you. And so that's where we are today. Well, that's going to conclude our discussion for this episode, but we've got some other episodes in various stages of pre-production and segments that have already been recorded for you. So very soon there will be an episode that recaps this summer operation that just concluded. And another sort of episode that we would like to do would be a a question and answer episode. We do receive a lot of inquiries through uh, the various social media outlets. And then, you know, when I'm engaged in in public speaking uh, events and things of that nature, I've received a lot of questions from people. So obviously there are listeners out there who have questions that we might not have touched on in the podcast. So what we'd like you to do, if you go to woodape.org, the official website of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, in the drop down menu, there's a tab that says contact us. And there's a form there where you can submit an inquiry into the website. And one of the drop down fields is reason of contact. So you would just click that and then select question and submit your question. We'll accumulate those and then we'll devote an episode to going through those and uh, answering those as best we can and have a good Q&A episode queued up fairly soon. No pun intended. Well, Daryl, thanks so much for joining me this evening. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, it's, it's been fun, Matthew. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you next time, man. I guess we'll uh, cue your beautiful closing theme music. <laughs>